I often cry when singing or hearing Amazing Grace, but when I first heard this new re-released version of Judy Collins' historic 1970 recording of Amazing Grace, now with a virtual choir of a thousand people, including New York Choral Society, the Sueto Gospel Choir, Alan Cummings, Steve Earle, Judith Owen, Madeline Peru, Tiff Merritt, this was so beautifully done and haunting. The tears kept flowing. It was like the heavens opened up and all the angels sang. Proceeds of this new release go to the World Health Organization response to COVID-19. This is partly why this podcast was created, to honor the people responsible for music that was part of the soundtrack of our collective consciousness, our collective lives, especially back when music was communal, on at the same time and all the time on our radios. Music is not only healing to our souls, but it's the closest thing we have to a time machine, and it can help lift our spirits up. Welcome to Go Beyond Here. I'm Carrie. Go Beyond Here is my website, and this podcast was born out of the forced worldwide reconnection with ourselves, period, aka the new COVID-19 world, which is a reminder that time and tomorrow is not a given. These come-to-Jesus moments in life are a reminder there is a spiritual side to this physical plane we live on, and life's tough moments are a Morse code from the universe to make sure the life path we've chosen is the one we're meant to be on. Are we honoring the gifts we brought with us in this life? Are we seeing the silver lining rather than the cloud? These moments are the times we're forced to grow spiritually and do our spiritual homework. And this podcast is my spiritual homework as I go back to my old music blog when I was a Huffington Post contributor, where I interviewed musicians who chose the Mozart life, the tougher road in life, the one that had no promise of money, but it was the one they were meant to be on and the one where they honored their gifts, their higher selves, living out their passion and owning their raison d'etre, their reason for being, even if someone else might not believe in their music. By allowing me the privilege of connecting their guardian angels, loved ones on the other side, they're encouraging me and my gift, which isn't as accepted in society as theirs is, and by me too, since it took me many years to accept, as we talk about their similar gift of channeling music from their higher selves and the other side. Hopefully, these conversations about the spiritual components of the physical plane can be of use to others to own your own raison d'etre, your reason for being in this life, to use your gifts to be of service. So I'm so thrilled today because it's my honor to be talking to folk music icon, the legendary Judy Collins. Thanks so much for visiting with me today, Judy. It's so apropos to talk to you at this moment in the world, as well as being a full circle moment for me. I just want to tell you a quick story. I consider myself not musically gifted, and it takes work. And in my mid-20s, when someone broke my heart, things felt like forever at that age. And I was uncontrollably crying with tissues all around me. And I grew up knowing your version of both sides now. And all I could think of was I focused writing down the lyrics, figuring out the chords. And that was a first for me. And I just kept singing it for days. So it's a real full circle moment for me. Thank you for visiting with me today. Kari, I got chills when you were talking because you've said a lot of the things that I believe about our callings and why it's so important to figure out what those voices that you hear in your heart mean and which ones to follow and which ones to discard. You asked about an angel. I think I've got 
an angel in my father. I think my father's life and his work and what he did in his life have been very fundamental in my being able to stay with the course. And so I want to thank you for having me with you today. So go ahead and let me get my mitzvah out of the way. But you're also doing a mitzvah for me today by allowing me to have the privilege of connecting your father. So say your name three times, your father's first name once, and a question for your father. He may or may not answer the question. You could just say, how are you? Judy, 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 Chuck. What do I do now? It's funny, when you were saying your name three times before you said his name, he was echoing what you said about having chills. So do you get, he, he got chills. He's been getting chills from your music lately. But also, conversely, have you been getting chills? Like sometimes you're in the kitchen cooking. Do you ever get chills on the back of your neck at all, ever? Like that feeling of the back of your neck? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. Your father said that that's his way of connecting with you, but he has many ways. And he said that over the years, I'm seeing like the number 70. So he's saying over the years, though, you, you have seen signs from him, whether it's picking up a penny or a feather. True? Yes, absolutely. I've yeah. had I, mean, I just need to know from my own thoughts. When did he go back home? Like, when did he cross over? He crossed over in 1968. Okay. All right, so he's showing me the 70, the number 70. So I was like, what does that mean? I feel like that was the album. So was the 1970 album a seminal album in your life? Would you consider that a seminal album for you? Yes, the one that had Amazing Grace on it. Because just about, you know, the sign in around 70s. Was there something in that album that was a sign for him or from him? Was there something in that album that was like a sign for him or from him? I believe so, because it was, it was, uh, an album that was mystical. And of course, my father was blind and he loved the songs that he sang, but he also loved the song the songs that I sang. One of them was a, a recording of the, of the uh, humpbacked whales. And uh, that was very mystical to me and very strange. It was an acapella singing on my part of a song called um, Farewell to Tarwasi. And it was very reminiscent of the kind of thing that he would sing to me. He sang Irish songs to me growing up, to you know, to everybody. He'd even sing them on the radio sometimes. He had a radio show for 30 years. So that was the sign. Yeah, he's nodding his head yes. And he's also talking about coming around you around food. Do you like to cook a lot for yourself in the kitchen? Are you cooking for yourself a lot? Well, I'm doing preparation, certainly. I don't cook a lot, but I make a hell of a salad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's saying he comes around you in the kitchen. Are you alone when you're in the kitchen, standing there cooking and preparing? Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. He comes around in that space. I, I don't know why. Are you singing? Do you ever sing a cappella to yourself in the kitchen? No. <laughs> no, no. I do listen to music. Yeah, okay. I That's think, it, okay. I mean, my music... Yeah. Sometimes I'll play the things that I'm writing that yeah. I can put on, yeah. my, on my phone and play to myself. That's it. There's something in the kitchen that like you're singing or there's something like you're singing or there's music in the kitchen and he comes around that. Now, do you drive still, Judy? Do you drive in the car? No, but I am driven a lot. So I spend a lot when I'm on the road, which I'm not now. I spend a lot of time in cars and I'm always thinking about him because when I was little, my mother was his driver for a short, me a few months, 
and we were driving in the Northwest. I often think about why it is that I love to travel. And it's because I was traveling with him and my mother in the backseat of that Buick before my other siblings were born. And I was very connected to the trees, the, the widow trees gathered together in widow bunches outside the windows. And that was, uh, you know, he was there in the car with me. Yeah, because he's talking exactly because he's talking about being in the car with you. That's why I was trying to figure out, like, are you driving yourself a lot? And he's just visiting with you now. But he's talking about being in the car with you. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, he he's he's lovely. He, he was just saying, look, I'll be along for the ride for, with you in general, I'll, always, but also for this conversation. So he kind of, you know, when you make a, a movement with your hand, like you can keep proceeding, you know, that push, push your hand, like he's pushing the hand, like you can keep proceeding. You can talk about the music now. Cause he knows we, we have important stuff to get to like your wisdom and wise words for uh, certain thoughts and certain topics we're going to cover. So he's, he's a lovely man, Judy. I mean, I have to tell you, did, did, was he a gentle spirit when he was here as well, physically? <laughs> He was charming, and uh, he was impossible. Because <laughs> he's come through like a, a gentle, polite person to me. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, he wasn't exactly gentle. He was incredibly strong in his views, and he was incredibly talented. Talented. He was a great singer, a great entertainer, and uh, a great reader, and a good, awfully good songwriter. Yeah, he's shaking his head. Yes, Every, this whole sentence that you're saying, he's saying yes, yes, yes. He, he feels polite to me, at least towards me at this moment. Again, he's giving me the proceed sign, the push your hand slightly forward, like pushing, pushing your hand forward. Okay, so there's so much to get to the importance of talking to you now at this moment. Hopefully we can share a little bit about music and the importance of music and folk music now and your newly re released version of Amazing Grace. I love talking about our raison d'etre, this French word that I, I don't pronounce very well, our reason for being. For me, I felt like since this forced worldwide reconnection, that moment began with ourselves. There were two intertwined things. And I was saying to Bruce Sudano in an episode early, we were hoping people would come out of this moment not seeing black, brown, yellow, white, blue, or red, and instead seeing one as we are all connected and important to help the planet and the environment as well. And then at this juncture now, an emotional week for the world, it's also to underscore to all of us about time not being a given tomorrow and to figure out our raison d'etre, our reason for being. Why did we choose this life and bring certain gifts with us? Having had my own loss of loved ones, which is why I push myself to do readings and this podcast, I feel that's my raison d'etre. At 81, your whole life, you've fully been living out your raison d'etre and honoring your gift of music you brought with you. And Judy, so many people your age have given up decades prior. They're retired and don't have a raison d'etre, which is fine for some, but perhaps some would like to be of service. Any thoughts about living out one's raison d'etre, their reason for being in life? I was given this gift and I've been able to sustain it with the help of great teachers and of having a, a good fortune, a luck in the world that I traveled, never to be, <laughs> never to be dissed so badly or treated so badly that I quit, or never to go into dangerous situations and not come out. And I've been in a lot of dangerous situations because I was an alcoholic active for many years. So there were many blackouts that I was in that I came out of safely. 
which is not always uh, something you can count on. And so I knew when I was a little girl, I was by the time I was five, I was playing the piano and I knew that music was my thing. I worked, I was always performing. I was always playing, singing, going on my father's radio show, singing for the, with the choruses, the choirs, surrounded by beautiful music in church, in school. My father chose always the very best songs from all the shows. So I learned all of those. And so I know that for me, and I think this is true for everybody, you have to find what you love and do it. Do it regularly. If it's writing poems, write poems every day. If it's, you know, knitting, knit every day. If it's making paintings, paint every day. Because that's what's connecting you to your dream, to your angels, to your purpose, to your raison d'etre. Perfectly sensible to know what is helping your mental health, which is exercise, eat right, and do something wonderful for yourself in the world every day. When did you know you had this gift of music and how did you know to follow this gift you brought with you in this life? How does one know when they are on their life path, that's their highest potential, their fullest potential? Because I was happy. It's that simple. Because mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I was happy. Uh, Doing what I do, writing, singing, practicing, playing the piano, writing a song, makes me happy. And happiness is the clue to physical health. That's how you get to know that you're actually, everything is working in your body and you're supposed to be um, using all of your force and all of your ideas and all of your energy and all of your talent. You're supposed to be using, you know, somebody was talking about her father the other day and she said when he was working, he was inspiring. He was always on the phone with people, his his mind was challenged. Then he retired and he fell apart and he went to pieces. Well, there's a simple reason for that. If you're not doing what gives you pleasure and joy, something is going to fall apart for you. So you have to find, if you can't do the one thing you were doing that made you happy, you have to find other things. People get very interested after they quotes unquotes retire, which I don't believe in retirement. But they say, oh, I have to now find myself. I'll go to class. I'll learn to paint, which is great because that's what we have to do is find something that drives our train. And you also know when you're dialed in and connected to your higher self, right? Because that's another validation, the happiness, and it feels right, right? That's right. If you know you're making other people happy and yourself happy, that's the key. You know, if you live in a village and you're, you have an assigned, let's say you have an assigned job in a, vill- a primitive village. Your job is to wash the pots. Okay, wash the pots the best, the very best you can. My father would also say, whatever the job it is given to you to do, do it with everything you have. Whether it's making a music, it's creating a movie, it's, it's helping your neighbor. Do it with the best energy you have. Oh, my God, Judy, we're on the same page because I literally was thinking of that same image. I was thinking of, a, of, of being the best dishwasher in a restaurant. <laughs> That's exactly the image when we were talking as you, before you were even saying it. <laughs> you must be the best. You must reach to that higher calling because you, you always know that what you are doing is what you're supposed to be doing. I have a friend who used to say, if you want to know what 
what is supposed to be look around you. That's what's happening. That's what's supposed to be. That's what is. So be part of it. Be positive. I am a total optimist, which drives some people in my life crazy. But I don't give up and I don't lose hope and I don't get, you know, off the page of where it is I'm going because that's the rate. That's the way I was raised. That's the way my father raised me. That was his optimism. That was his view of the world. He was blind from the age of four, but he's a person who saw more than anybody else that I ever knew. He's interrupting when you're talking about he was blind. Uh, he interrupted and he said that he chose this life path on a higher level spiritually, you know that he chose, when he chose this human package of a body as your father, that he chose being blind and he checked off the box. He said, give it to me, I can handle it. Did you ever feel that? Think about his life path, that on a higher level, he chose this role for you. Of course. And that would be, that would bring true. Give it to me, I can handle it. And that's the way he expected the rest of us to live. That's the way he raised his five kids. He said it was very much chosen and that he should be an example to others around him about how it's that phrase we just carry on he said gosh darn i chose to be blind on a higher level spiritually so i knew i checked off that box give me being blind i can handle it i'll be born i'll be you know judy's father i'll be blind he chose that entire storyline that entire package that entire life path for a reason and he said he helped a lot of people so what does that mean in his life was it just because he was kind to people what what does he mean by saying that he said he helped a lot of people he was a great singer he was a great entertainer he made people laugh he made people smile he made people okay. he was uh, beloved by everybody who knew him and he was an impressive man he was he did what he was supposed to do, and he did it the best he could, and he was a brilliant person. Yeah, that's because that's what he was saying. So he was interjecting when we were talking. There are divine moments of serendipity where a catalyst opens the door that leads to our life path we're meant to be on. What, what was that moment for you back then when you, for what it is now that you were living the Mozart life, you're living out your life of music. So what was that catalytic moment that opened the door that led you to your life path? I believe that it was the discipline, which I started when I was about five years old, when I started playing the piano. The discipline that was required of me to get to the point where I played with an orchestra at 13, it's every day sitting down in front of that piano and practicing. I was thinking this morning about the fact that I practice every day. I mean, I have to. And that that's how I get my songs written. It's how I play. It's how I perform. It's, but it's the discipline itself, which my father really taught me, that is the foundation of wherever you want to do. If you want to fly, you've got to learn to run and walk first. And the discipline is learning to run and walk and climb and, and uh, keep your balance and so on. Then you can fly. That's one of my questions when I did my music blog about honoring the Mozart life. Do you have a routine daily, a daily routine for music? And also, Judy, listening to this amazing Grace version that's, you know, with the, this virtual orchestra and listening to your recent album with your Mountain Girl and Blizzard and Dreamers, your voice is the way it was. So do you do anything to take care of this instrument that is your gift as well? I took care of it and I, I always tried. And then I found a teacher in 1965, seems so long ago. I found a teacher, I, I serendipitously, two people in New York whom I highly respected, 
I was losing my voice, and I asked them both, Harry Belafonte's guitarist and the uh, people who ran the Lenox, Massachusetts uh, arts camp called called Indian Hill. I asked them both separately uh, who was the best vocal teacher, and nobody was interested in finding a vocal teacher from the folk music world, I'll tell you that. And uh, they both recommended the same person. I went to him. Um, it's a long story, but in fact, he took me on as a student, and I studied with him for 30 32 years, and he taught me how to sing. And that's why I can sing the way I do. Yes, I had the natural talent, which came from my father. I inherited it in the genes, absolutely. I was raised on the Irish songs. I knew the melodies. I knew how to choose a song. But Max Margulies helped me to maintain and develop that voice, which is why when he died, he said, don't worry, you can sing until you fall over. No problem. It's the clarity and the lyrics it's the clarity and the phrasing, and you're you're going to be fine. Do you have a daily process for music, a daily routine for music at all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't be where I am today without it. I have to practice every day. I spend, what I do is I, I use that hour to play and to sing and to develop the lyrics that I've been working on. I usually write poetry. If I can, I do a poem every day. If not, I'll do something in writing, and then I apply the uh, musical ideas to whatever's been written, and slowly I grind out the songs, but I have to practice every day. There's no there's no way around it. You can't do this. You have to exercise every day. You have to eat right every day. You have to meditate every day. You have to have contact with your friends every day, and you've got to practice. In terms of folk music, I have a guitar. I bought this guitar in college because it's perfectly, it was perfectly made for folk music. I literally just mostly sing like Peter, Paul and Mary, Pete Seeger, 500 Miles. My dad would sing Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, Around Our Home. And it showcases voice and melody, the acoustic guitar. I just want to talk a little bit about folk music and the importance of it. And last weekend, you know, mayhem was breaking in our country. And then I was feeling very ungrounded. And, you know, folk music always grounds me. It's when I play guitar, I just feel my heart chakra opens up. Do you also feel that way when you're playing guitar and you're strumming and it could be the simplest song, but do you feel your heart, your heart chakra just opening up and just being dialed in and your energy just being tuned in? Oh, yes, absolutely. And of course, I play the piano or play the guitar in all my shows. I write most of my songs on the piano and that's where I get the opening up. Of the energy, yeah. So I turned the TV over to PBS's John Sebastian Presents Folk Music Rewind, and I instantly got calmer and more grounded to hear these timeless songs that I grew up singing since kindergarten. And seeing you and the loving Pete Seeger scene turn, turn, turn in black and white. And then it made me think about the race riots in the 60s and the news footage of people locking arms and singing We Shall Overcome in that moment, and how if protesters now sang that or song or melody, how much more profound that extra layer of this higher vibrating energy called song, this ethereal, powerful thing called music that hits right through our souls could add to that dialogue because people can feel notes and melody right in their hearts. Do you have you know any thoughts about that? Because I, I did think that thought about the race riots and we shall overcome and locking arms. And that's a different... It was just a little different from now, you know. Well, I 
always said and thought in those days, you know, if we could just get these armies to sing. Actually, the Red Army Chorus was always very good. And we always thought, oh, dear, uh, maybe they're that good. Um, if we could get these people circling the uh, the White House who are dressed in uh, without name tags or identification and armed to the teeth, if we could get them to start singing, it might be very helpful. <laughs> yeah, Judy, I mean, again, we're on the same page because literally I was thinking, oh, I really feel like you know, a, a missing layer or an extra layer that could help this process. A song, melody is healing, you know, as well. Exactly. Songs for the soldiers. Maybe that would be it, you know. I don't Songs know. for the soldiers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can hand out the lyrics, pass it around, you know, say, you know, take one and pass it on and see if, if you, even if you can't read music, you certainly know the melody to uh, We Shall Overcome. So join us. <laughs> Yes, yes. And continuing on this conversation about music, it must be this humbling feeling to know that the music that you channel, you write original music, you sing cover songs, you're known for cover songs, that it gives people a smile on their hearts and souls. Do you ever think about it that, you know, you're a conduit of something that is a higher vibrating energy called music and that song is printed in our souls? Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's part of our DNA. It's with, It's one of the arts. There are how many arts, I forget, but they're all essential to our mental, physical, and spiritual, and um, what's the other one? Physical, mental, spiritual health. It, those things, painting, writing, singing, they're all essential to our total spiritual karma and our spiritual health. We have to have them all. Oh, my God, Judy. Again, we're on the same page, literally. I'm not kidding. I... I was thinking that when I was saying the question, I was thinking that last night, I was thinking about talking to you and then about, again, folk music rewind stuff about how people say things like the arts and the arts and it, music, it's a side note and, you know, on the side and, you know, the, the budgets in, in schools, it's always a side note, but how essential art it, arts are, how essential music is per, per se exactly in this moment. Over the years now, when I was growing up, we had music, we had art, we had shop, we had uh, cooking, we had drama, we had English, we had ethics, we had social sciences. As the money and the greed began to overtake the values in education, the arts began to drop out of the schools. Then, of course, when children are troubled, quotes, unquote. First of all, we throw drugs in them. And secondly, we give them, quotes, unquotes, music and arts to try to help to heal them, to get them through the trauma that's come about because they don't have drama and arts and music in their schools anymore. Yeah, exactly. And in my old music blog, talking about choosing the Mozart life, the life that isn't a given, but maybe a tougher road, but it is honoring your gift. And your music is timeless. It's like Mozart's. It does take us back to a happier, simpler time. I mean, I just was grounded seeing you and Pete Seeger in that moment. In so many ways, you did choose the Mozart life, this lasting music. How do you find inspiration for the music? When I hear a melody that I love, like the High King singing The Parting Glass, it throws me into a whole different dimension. First of all, I want to learn the song. Secondly, I want to sing it. Thirdly, I want to sort of let the reverberation of that inspiration lead me to write another song or to find another song. 
it's it's all about hooking in with something that's timeless and that's usually ageless because folk music of course has its depth in history and my own dna has its depth in my own ancestry and i'm sure that my ancestors were doing many of the same things i'm doing cooking singing songs while they were working going and hearing people sing songs listening to stories we need stories we need to connect and music and stories does something with the memory it brings things up to us that might have escaped us otherwise. I always hear songs in my head, songs people recorded in my mind daily. What do you hear as a singer? Do you hear other people's songs as well as original songs? Because you have this interesting combination of being a singer as well as a songwriter. I have a, I have a couple of habits that have turned into disciplines. When I'm writing uh, a number of songs, which I am right now, I go back and find ones that make me happy and that I love. And then I also look in my mind for the song that's playing over and over again. And I go back and work on that. And if I'm, if I'm listening to uh, music of other people's, the same thing is true. You have to apply the same values and the same um, ideals to anybody else's music as you do to your own. So I will listen in the same way, put a few things together. And the one that winds up in my head that I sing over and over. That's the one I'll go to and have to record, have to sing and have to learn. So sometimes in your head during the day, randomly, you'll, you'll be hearing your own music that you're working on. Oh, yes, absolutely. And if that's not happening, there's some disconnect there that I have to address and find out why it's not happening. Talking about the Mozart life, it may be the tougher road to choose, but you're fully living out your true self. Do you resonate to that? Because you literally did not choose the nine to five path. You never started on the nine to five path. You started being a musician. Do you feel like you're consciously living the life you thought you'd be living? Always. I always was. I started out that way. And of course I was, I was raised in this family where my father was a performer, entertainer. He too had to practice every day and, and he had a disciplined life. He was very disciplined and being blind, there were a lot of things that he had to do to make sure that he wasn't going to be crushed by this, uh, what he did not call an infirmity. Didn't use a dog, didn't use a cane, uh, learned to get around with his radar from the age of about four. He found radar and he used it. That's why he couldn't have any tennis shoes because he couldn't hear the sound of his heels on the, on the pavement. He couldn't know where he was going. So his discipline was exquisite really about around his personal looks and health and, the way he dressed and the way he shined his shoes right down to polishing the um, polishing by hand and, and making sure that everything was, he stood up very straight. So they had to take that, that leg out of the back of his coats, which most men get because they slump and um, he walked straight. He talked straight. He, he had indomitable um, courage of, of intention. During this whole sentence that you were saying, he was interrupting. When you talked about discipline, that was when he interrupted. And he was saying that he taught you discipline again. Again, he said he, yeah. he said he gave an example to everyone about how to live life. Again, I almost feel like it's a, a sense of carrying on, you know, and just not letting a um, handicap handicap him. That's 
what I feel like he's very um, capable. He said he was very capable while you were talking. That's the word. He was extremely smart, extremely capable. He was also an alcoholic, which of course was his, his battle was not with his blindness. His battle was with his alcoholism. He had no idea what was the matter with him. He had no idea why he would change personalities at the blink of an eye when he was drunk. And in a way, of course, it's the lesson to me. Uh, I tried to kill myself when I was 14, and he wrote me a letter, which my mother saved for me, which I have somewhere in my books and my papers and so on. She saved for me all these years, and basically what he said was, and of course, depression is part of alcoholism. I mean, it's a alcohol is a depressant, so it's natural that we get depressed when we drink. And the, the suicide attempt absolutely came out of depression, mental a mental illness, of course, depression is. And the, the letter that he wrote me basically said, you have a gift and you cannot do this. You, I don't know what would have happened if I'd succeeded. It would have destroyed my parents, I'm afraid. But he said, you can't do this because you have a job. You have a life to live with a gift that you have and you are responsible to it and you're letting yourself down, but you're re- letting the world down. If you complete this terrible act, so don't do it. It's <laughs> basically what he said. Yeah. And he's, again, when you were talking about being an alcoholic, uh, him drinking as well, he did say that that was his human failure, his human weakness, but that's part of the journey as well. It's part of the spiritual growth and life lesson that he chose to walk through. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he, in fact, he kind of said it was one of his themes because we you know how when you come in this life path that we choose, we, we choose certain life themes we go through and we play roles for one another. So he said that was another theme he, he went through himself. He also played a role for you. And like because you, you were describing, you know, his, you know, his words to you and whatever. He was talking about playing a role for you as well. And that was a very essential role. And he said, if you did not play this role of this particular father to you in your life path, you would not be who you are and touch so many other souls, souls you'll never meet on the planet. But because of him, that opened your door, he said. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what he just said. And we all have times when we're in the wilderness, the desert of our lives, but it helps us evolve and create that next, hopefully better chapter. What was that valley for you? Would that be the valley, a low point in your life to help raise your consciousness and stay true to yourself and own your own life path? And what did you do when you did have an epiphany? Well, it was interesting that uh, I, I haven't thought of this in the, this ter- in these terms before, but when my, my son took his life in 1992 and I decided, I mean, it just devastated me completely. And I decided at that point that I would shut down everything. I would cancel all my shows and I would just step aside. And I got a call maybe five days after Clark's death from Joan Rivers. And Joan said she was, she was in her dressing room in Las Vegas, getting ready to go on stage. And she said, you cannot stop working. She said, if you do, you're not going to recover from this. Now, this was a turning point for me. So I I believed her. She was a friend. She had been through this with her husband. She knew what she was talking about. She knew the value of work. She worked harder than anybody I ever knew. And she gave me the solution. She gave me the key to the door 
to get through this, which was to go back to work. So there you go. It's funny. Your father, while you were talking, he um, he was kind of saying that he said, you know, right, when your son went back home, he, your father and him, obviously, he obviously greeted him at the door. I mean, you knew that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. He loved Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, another episode, I interviewed Claire Hamill. She's a British folk singer. She wrote a song called You Take My Breath Away, which became covered by Tuck and Patty. It's their classic hit. I asked her, what was the focal point? What was the catalyst for the song? And she talked about coming to America in the early 70s and meeting a North Carolina surfer. So she wrote this song. And so he was the subject of this song. I was wondering about, even though you're a songwriter, but being the focal point of a song (laughs) that was captured in a timeless moment, songs are the closest thing we have to a time machine. It chronicles a deep love in a moment, capturing it forever. And all of us hearing it, we absorbed it in our lives. We remember where we were when we first heard it, perhaps, like Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. And it's this beautiful layered thing where that song becomes something to us in that moment and means something else. So just from your perspective, being the object of a timeless song, to me, the loving line is, I am yours, you are mine, you are what you are. To me, that's very loving in that line. It's about full self-acceptance of someone in that moment, because we are on the human plane and we all have quirks and weaknesses. What is it like to be the focal point of a song that becomes timeless? It was remarkable. It was thrilling. It was devastating. It was uh, strange. I I was so, when he sang it to me, which he did uh, about three or four months, five months after he wrote it, I didn't know he was writing it. And he had already started rehearsing it with CSNN when he sang it to me. But I said to him, and we were breaking up anyway, and I said, you know, it's so beautiful. We were both in, in tears, of course. And I said, but it's not going to get me back. And then nowadays I say, but I was, I wasn't so, I was, that wasn't true because we have had a friendship that's lasted over 50 years and we always stayed in touch with each other. We liked each other's music. We got to be, we maintained the friendship part of the romance. We just, we finished uh, a year and a half ago, we finished, 115 shows together we went on the road and we had the most extraordinary tour in which we did these 115 shows over the course of a year and a half and we were on the stage for two hours every night together um, singing all of our songs together we each had one solo but normally when you have a duo like that the first person does an hour the next person comes and does it but we were there from the beginning. We had the best time. We talk all the time. We communicate. We think about things. We philosophize about things. I mean, this song came out of what was much more than a love affair. It was a friendship. And love comes in different forms, you know? I mean, people kind of mistaken. Sometimes love is a certain form, like a romantic form. Or love is deeper than just the layers of love, the nuances of love, like romance or um, familial love, right? And so I feel like I just felt that in that line. That line to me is timeless. I am yours, you are mine, you are what you are. That's like totally accepting someone where they are. Oh, yes. It's total acceptance. And uh, he's an amazing fellow and smart as a whip and wonderful, wonderfully um, 
giving and interesting, besides that. To be captured in a moment, someone's love in that moment. Do you ever just like, uh, it's just the song on the side, you don't really think about it much, or you don't, do you ever think about the layers of how that song probably means to other people in their own lives? They, they carry it with them for another reason, for example. Well, I don't think about it. I don't dwell on it because it has plenty of room in my life already. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need more room in that. I don't need it to take up more room in my life than it already does. <laughs> One of our, the human lessons I feel we all go through and choose to go through on a higher level is ego. And it's really interesting. You write songs, but you also cover them and you're known for your covers. Is there ever an inner tug, an inner push and pull with your songwriting versus covering someone else's song? Because you do it both so well. Thank you. It's the ones that I record are really given to me the ones that are written by other people, they hook on to me and they don't leave. So it's not a matter of really making a conscious choice. The only thing I will say about that is that when I'm writing songs, I don't know if that, if that's probably going to fade because it has faded somewhat. I do both and I do listen. And for instance, in the, in the last album that I made with the, which became number one on Billboard, by the way. First time I ever had a number one <laughs> album on Billboard. They got all got so excited. Anyway, it's I was in the middle of recording sweet uh, winter stories with with um, Chatham County Line and Jonas Feld, and we had recorded uh, my my song "The Blizzard," and we recorded "Mountain Girl," and we recorded. Um, the fallow, the fallow way, and something else of mine I can't remember. And then somebody, uh, my, I think my manager proposed that I do one of Joni's songs, "River," which I had never sung. Uh, why I hadn't sung it, I have no idea. And I said, of course, and I started singing it. And of course, it's a perfect fit, and it is an amazing song. So I had no, I had no problems with that either. So. They, they both, both the songs that I choose or that choose me, I prefer to say it that way, really. The songs that chose me are similarly, they have to be, the ones that I write have to be up to a certain standard. So I suppose that helps one way or the other. I think it, uh, each one is helpful to the other, if you know what I mean. I understand what you mean by the fact that it, the song chooses you because it doesn't leave your heart, right? You just have to sing it. Have to sing it. No question. And by the way, I don't, I never analyze or fuss over why a song is or isn't something that grabs me. It either grabs me or it doesn't. If it doesn't, I never want to hear it again. If it does, and I know it's right, then I can't get rid of it. But it's funny, there's no sense of ego for you. Like, you don't mind if it's someone else's song. You don't mind if it's your song. You're very open-hearted about the process. But I was trained growing up by a man who was very talented, incredibly wonderful entertainer, who chose the very best songs. And I understood that it's about the song. It's not about who wrote it. It's not about what show it was in. It's not about how much people think about it. It's about the song and the quality itself. And that supersedes every other decision you have about it. Who wrote it? Whether you wrote it, somebody else wrote it. It's about art. Is this art, is this a high enough level of quality? Does this meet my standards? 
And it's not something I have to think about or analyze. It's a kind of DNA thing that comes out in you, which is, oh, I want that one and that and that one. And this melody that I'm writing is good. And the other ones I don't really care about. I always talk about this question about time because I think about time a lot and the time we have that we're given. Do you think about time a lot and what you want to do with your time? Do you think about time much? No, I think about today. I think about what I have to do to keep things rolling, to keep my songs coming, to keep my hand in the writing, whether it's my morning pages or dreams or poems. or I, I think about today. What's What does today require of me? Judy, that is why you're still young, because you don't, you're always in the present moment. That's the correct way to be, to always be in the present. That's right. Most people are thinking in the future or the past, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why you're, you're really dialed in. And unlike any time in history, we're in this overwhelming digital era. How do you stay grounded and focus on your path and why you're here? I just do the work that's in front of me. That's what I have to do. Do you do anything to unplug or ground, for example? Or any? Or is there any song that you play to, to pick yourself up when you need inspiration? I, re, I love to write. To, I love to watch movies. That's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love to get on my stationary bike and watch television or, or in the hotel rooms. I love to run and watch television. I mean, I cannot exercise without doing without a television set in front of me because I feel it's a waste of both both enterprises. Judy, I love I love that visual too. I didn't know you on your exercise bike. <laughs> the latest album was you mentioned Winter Stories has two beautiful songs, Mountain Girl and Blizzard, but you also had a song Dreamers that I loved. Do you, is there anything you want to say about any of that music at all? I'm glad that the blizzard is on this new album. And it is a song that I wrote that a lot of people think is the best thing I've ever written. I don't know about that, but I do know that it's very powerful because it's about living through a crisis, an emotional crisis, but it's also about living through a blizzard and coming out the other side and getting through the storm, of course, which is a way of saying, there's a way to get through the storms and we have to find out how to save our own lives. The blizzard to me is also very haunting. It's apropos because it is talking about getting through life's a blizzard in life. And the other song mountain girl for me was very uplifting and very um, you know, spiritual to me. A lot of your music, Judy is very spiritual. I have to say for me, how did the amazing grace re-release version with a thousand other singers come about? It came about, well, I believe in synchronicity and the things that happen to us that we that have mystery in them and that are presented to us to solve our mysteries. I have a friend whose name is Bliss, and she says all of our problems are discreetly crafted for us in particular. And after the COVID-19 started to happen, a preacher in England called Pat Atherton who I think is called The Wandering Preacher, went out into the street and played Amazing Grace on one of his speakers at full tilt in front of the Charing Cross Hospital. And it got five million hits. We got it over here. I heard it, and of course, it was my version of Amazing Grace. 
And suddenly my manager and Warner Electra Atlantic, which is the company, I, I'm an Electra, I was an Electra artist for half of my career, and they put that original version of Amazing Grace out in 1969, 70. And they, Catherine called me and she said, what would you think about having a chorus of people from all over the world in choirs and separately sing on the chorus with you. I said, oh, my God, that's perfect. I mean, I want to do something in this terrible time that we're in. What a perfect thing to do and have the proceeds go to the World Health Organization. I said, this is a dream come true, which it is. So I have just been the one to sit back and absorb this momentously different and beautiful choir of all these people from the, around the world joining me. But what kind of a vision is that to come true? I mean, you might think it up, but for it to happen, <laughs> it's miraculous. It sounded to me like a chorus of angels singing. It was so haunting and profound. And again, like we we're talking about the importance of music. To me, it was such a touching story about the power of music. That, that just gave me chills. Yeah, it's amazing. Proceeds will go to the World Health Organization's response to COVID-19. Julie, lots of love. Thank you so much for doing a mitzvah for me and letting me have the privilege of connecting your father and your guardian angel. That was so much fun. Thank you so much. Hari, it was a real privilege. I love talking to you and I wish you a beautiful day. Thank you so much. I love talking to you too. Lots of love. Thank you, darling. Bye. Bye.